Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Riddle Me That. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, All Things Crime, and DNA ID. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And together we host a true crime podcast called The Prosecutors. Every week, we bring our perspective as prosecutors to some of the toughest cold cases of all time. Disappearances, murder, mayhem, you name it, we'll cover it. So join us for a true crime podcast with a different point of view. Because we are the prosecutors. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. So I'm very excited today to announce I'm going to be doing a monthly series with Chelsea from Crime and Crime Again. We're going to be highlighting monthly a case of a missing and murdered Indigenous woman. Chelsea and I collaborated on the case of Kara Kopetsky in the past, so some of you may know her. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to be back. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you back, and I'm really excited to start this series. So, Chelsea, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast, Crime and Crime Again? Sure. So I started Crime and Crime Again back in August, and I started it with the intention of trying to cover those lesser known cases that don't get as much spotlight. And I especially wanted to try to emphasize cases of missing and murdered indigenous women. And those were probably the first two episodes I did were Kaysera stops pretty places in Amber Tuckero. And I don't know, it just, it gives me this sense of like purpose, like, I feel like I'm doing the right thing here. I, I want to keep talking about this and make sure that their names aren't forgotten. Yeah, I think it's really great how you had your focus on missing and murdered Indigenous women cases, because I think the more light that we can shed onto these cases that I think are really kind of underreported, not underreported, but kind of like not covered enough in true crime. I think you do a really great job. Charlie from Crime Lines does a really great job. And there's other podcasters and YouTubers who do, but I really really enjoy your coverage. And I just on a side note, Chelsea's been blowing up on TikTok lately. Can you just tell my listeners a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah. So I started a TikTok for the podcast a few weeks ago, I think. And I didn't really post anything on it at first. And then I was like, all right, why not? I'll just do little like snippets from cases I've covered or little things like that. So I started posting. I posted a couple of these MMIW cases that I've already covered. And then I got to the case of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Hart Grizel. And that is, quote unquote, the Columbine couple who survived Columbine. And then a year later, they were both shot and killed in the subway where Nick worked. And now 20 years later, it is still unsolved. So that one really, really blew up for some reason. And I don't, I have no idea. It's just kind of taken off from there. And a couple of days ago, I posted... 
I also covered Brooklyn Farthing's case and I posted some TikToks on her case and those have also absolutely blown up. One of them has actually just now hit a million views. Wow, that's amazing. So it's a little overwhelming, but I think it's I think it's good. I think it's bringing some light to some unsolved and under undercovered cases. Yeah, and I think sometimes you've got a completely different crowd who's going to be watching TikTok to consume a 60-second video. They may not listen to a podcast. So they might not be hearing about these things. So for you to be kind of shedding light on these cases in these short snippets, it might kind of incentivize these people to go out and learn more about these cases. I think so. I've had a lot of comments where people will be like, so I looked into this and then they'll like follow up with a question and I'll be like, oh, that's that's cool. Although some people on the other side of that, they they spend a lot of time on things like TikTok and they're used to absorbing these short blips of information that are quick and entertaining and they can just like scroll and move on with their day. So those people who come across these videos, because I do them in multiple parts, because I do think the details are important in these cases where they're unsolved and they have no media coverage. But a lot of people don't like that. And I've I've had a lot of complaints actually about like multiple parts and people not wanting to swipe. And I'm like, well, details matter. Yeah. And I mean, if you're going to commit to one minute, is it that hard to commit to five? Exactly. It's not, it's not even hard. Like if it shows up on your for you page, you just swipe to the, what is it to the left or the right? And it just brings you to the page. And then you can just see all the rest of the videos there. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't know why people are so mad. Well, you can't necessarily wrap everything up nicely with a bow in one minute. These are cases that involve human beings Some of them are solved. Some of them are unsolved. I mean, there's just so many details to try to cram into one minute. I I can't imagine how you could even do it in five. So you're doing a great job. Don't feel bad. (laughs) Thank you. So this story is incredibly personal for you. Can you speak to your interest in MMIW cases? Yeah. So I think a lot of it stems from I myself am Native. I am of, as I mentioned in the last one, I am of the Passamaquoddy Nation in Maine, but my family moved away from the reservation long before I was born. So I wasn't raised on the reservation. I didn't grow up in my culture or anything like that. So I don't have the same experiences as many natives do. I haven't had the same experiences with racism. I haven't experienced any racism in my life because I am white passing. So there's a lot of these struggles that I can't necessarily personally speak to. But I do feel a connection with these cases, and I want to bring light to them. I want people to talk about them. I want people to learn about them. I think it's a really beautiful way to like, you know, kind of a nod to your heritage to go, okay, maybe I haven't had this experience, and maybe people don't necessarily look at me and think like, oh, she's an Indigenous woman. But you're saying, hey, like, maybe my experience is different, but I'm doing my part, and I'm going to bring light to these cases that are not covered enough in kind of popular media. Exactly. So I, I hope to do my best to not to not speak over the experiences of Indigenous people, but I hope that I can help at least shed some light on this serious, serious issue. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Today's story will take us to Bighorn County, Montana, a county situated on the southern border of the state. Most of the county is made up by both the Crow and Northern Cheyenne Reservations. Though it seems like any other small town, it's actually at the center of a massive crisis. The county has been the setting for an alarming number of cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women in recent years. This includes the case of Selena Not Afraid, which you may have heard of before. Her case garnered heavy media attention in January 2020 after she disappeared on New Year's Day and was then found 19 days later, deceased under extremely suspicious circumstances. Her death was ruled an accident and very little investigation was conducted, which resulted in tremendous public backlash and outcry. Still, nothing more has been done to investigate her suspicious disappearance and death. In Bighorn County alone, there have been 27 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the last decade. The county also has the highest rate of MMIP cases in the entire state of Montana. In Montana as a whole, there have been 134 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women since 2010. The indigenous population makes up only 6.7% of the entire state of Montana, yet 26% of all missing persons reports. That statistic is shocking. You 
basically like you're looking at a quarter of all missing person cases involving indigenous people and probably mostly women that is seriously so shocking. You've got to wonder if there's a serial killer or multiple serial killers kind of operating in this area or what do you think? I definitely think there is there is some sort of targeting going on. That people always bring up, well, people of all races are abducted and murdered and and while that's true, if you look at if you look at like the percentage per that population compared to the rest of the population, that's just, that is sky high. That is, there is something seriously wrong there. Do you think of any of the missing women that there's a possibility that they're being abducted and put into sex trafficking? I definitely think that's a possibility. I think, especially with Indigenous women, unfortunately, so many Indigenous people end up being more vulnerable because of situations with they're already working in sex work or they've gotten involved with drugs or alcoholism and all of these things make them so vulnerable. And because it's so prevalent in indigenous populations, that just kind of puts a target on their back for these people who seek out people like this. And it's basically a quarter of all missing persons cases. It sounds like for law enforcement, these are the cases that get the least amount of time. Exactly. And that is, that continues to be mind boggling to me how, and this of course, isn't knocking on any, anybody who's missing in, the, in, in general, but you have say a blonde white girl, blonde white teenage girl, she goes missing her face within less than 24 hours. Her face is plastered on every news station, every social media site. It's everywhere. And when I see any cases of Indigenous people that are missing, I'm like, I have never heard their name before. I have never seen their face before. Even on TikTok, where I'm posting videos, you can see just this glaring difference between cases of non-Indigenous people that I've covered on TikTok, which one of them has a million views at this point. And my first videos that I posted were about Kaysera. And they still are sitting at less than 20K. And that is the case across, that's the case across all of those indigenous cases I've been covering on TikTok. That's crazy. It is that idea of the quote unquote, I'm using air quotes right now, ideal victim versus the less dead. So you've got people that are basically indigenous. You've got women who are doing, you know, have addiction issues, substance abuse issues. They're in sex work. They're basically classified as, I hate this phrase, but the less dead, that nobody will miss them, that they aren't worth investigating in the same way as this ideal victim, who is exactly as you described, this kind of blonde haired, blue eyed high school girl where everyone is watching going, how would she go missing? How would she get murdered? And they're just so captivated. Whereas when it's an indigenous woman, they're like, oh, I get it. And it's just not the right attitude. And I think the more coverage that we get on these specific cases and we show people that these people have families, their lives matter, you know, and their families' lives matter. And the fact that their families deserve justice, that matters. Exactly. I don't even know how this is another thing where I don't even know how to articulate how baffling this is to me. That's exactly how the media and law enforcement looks at Indigenous people that their, their stories aren't worth talking about. That's exactly how they see it. And it's so disgustingly obvious. And I, <laughs> I can't imagine how Indigenous people actually feel. Like, I know I'm, I guess, Indigenous, but I can't imagine how people who've grown up directly in the center of all this feel because I am just so I'm infuriated about it. There are no throwaway people And I think that's what we all need to remember. We need to stop victim blaming and shaming and saying, oh, well, she was in sex work or she was doing drugs or, you know, she was in an abusive relationship or she put herself in a dangerous situation. These shouldn't be kind of excuses and justifications for violence that befalls somebody. We need to look at the perpetrator and put the onus and the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. And we need to remember that oftentimes when we're getting justice and resolution in these cases, We're not necessarily just getting it for the person who's missing or deceased. We're getting it for those family members that are left behind and so much deserve justice. 
Agree 100%. Bighorn County was also the home of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, whose story we'll be talking about today. Another indigenous woman who was stolen too soon and who has still not received justice. Kaysera Stops Pretty Places was born August 14, 2001, to her parents, Gerilyn Bulltail Stops and Allen Stops. Both sides of her family are members of the Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nations. She spent her childhood and her teen years both in Missoula, Montana, and Hardin, Montana, but she had been attending high school in Hardin. Kaysera lived with her paternal grandmother, Yolanda Frazier, who was also her legal guardian. She was incredibly athletic and had always been involved in various sports, including basketball, track, football, and wrestling. She was also a member of choir and drama and performed in several different school productions. Kaysera was incredibly kind and caring, and she had a huge heart for animals. She was known to frequently rescue stray animals in need. Okay, so can you explain to the listeners, just so they know, because Kaysera Stops Pretty Places is such a cool name, but both of her parents' last names were Stops, not Stops Pretty Places. So do they choose the name Pretty Places to add to the end? I believe so. I'm not entirely positive on how they come about certain names, but I, I believe they do choose. They, they can choose that surname. And Kaysera just sounds like, you know, kind of just every high school girl. She's super athletic. She really loves animals. And I mean, I can definitely relate. When I was in high school, I volunteered at the SPCA. Animals have a very special place in my heart. So I remember when, you know, you'd sent this to me and I read that about her and I was just like, this girl's really relatable. She's every girl. She isn't just this, you know, quote unquote, throwaway person. She isn't this person that's into all of these things that should make her this vulnerable person. So it just doesn't fit that stereotype in the way that people just want to dismiss her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. She's, she sounds just like an absolute sweetheart. And it breaks my heart even more just knowing what we're going to get into about her case, because this sweet young girl who played sports and rescued cats and puppies and just had so many things ahead of her and had so many dreams for herself. And it was just stolen. And I also love how she does, you know, predominantly male sports like football and wrestling. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, I love that. I'm always so impressed when girls are like, you know, there's not a girls football team. Well, I'm cool. Like I'll go play with the boys and wrestling. Like you can't tell me that I can't wrestle because I'm a girl. I'm going to do it anyways. So, you know, she sounds like a real feminist in that regard. I truly still don't even understand why, like, girls football isn't a thing, like, everywhere. Yeah, I don't get it either. I guess you have to have a certain number of girls who are interested in playing in order to have a team. But I think that can also be used as an excuse. If you don't try, you're never going to recruit any girls. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exactly. Like, I don't, it's like it's kind of not really presented as an option most of the time, as far as I've seen, as far as I could tell in high school. Yeah, I think it's like, oh, you're a girl? Cute. Why don't you do cheerleading? That's what girls do. (laughs) Which is really funny because so many many girls can never imagine themselves uh, flying up in the air and doing all the flips and all the the cheers and stuff. It's it's always funny the the generalizations that are made, even not just in like movies and stuff, but even in real life that that's a real thing. That's (laughs) it's weird. Yeah, and I'm not taking anything away from any cheerleaders out there because it is an absolutely a very demanding sport. It's like gymnastics in the air. If you're a cheerleader that takes things seriously, it's absolutely a sport just as much as football. 
So don't, don't get me wrong with that. But I think the girls should be given the option if they want to be tumbling and flying in the air or if they want to be, you know, throwing a pass on the football field. Exactly. And yes, cheerleading is an absolutely demanding in every sense of the word, physically, emotionally demanding sport. <laughs> yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there with also the emotional aspect of it, too. Because I think in football, there's less onus put on guys for being a perfect size and to look perfect. Whereas cheerleaders, both male and female cheerleaders, have a certain expectation of a certain kind of a certain physical look or stereotype, you know, to fit that role. So that can take a huge emotional toll as well. Oh, definitely. Especially in the expectation of, you know, looking a certain way in the uniforms. I think that it just, it's... I admire it as a sport. I just wish there wasn't so much generalization and pressure put on high school girls, I guess. Yeah, I think it it could serve to be a little more inclusive and a little less appearance focused. But unfortunately, being just more of a visual sport, kind of like dancing, I think we just need to invite more body types and more diversity into cheerleading and accept that there's beautiful in all sizes, shapes and appearances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, where am I at? All right, I'm going to go August. ahead and continue. Mm-hmm. On August 24th, 2019, 10 days after her 18th birthday, Kaysera had been hanging out with her friends. According to Kaysera's aunt, Grace Boltail, she had been at another family member's house with one of her friends, and this family member's house was somewhere she frequently visited and stayed the night. Reportedly, Kaysera and her friend left that house with two adults, a boyfriend and a girlfriend pair. This couple had a small child who stayed with Kaysera's family member when the four friends left. This was because the girlfriend was actually a niece of Kaysera's aunt, so they were essentially family as well. Well, this is sounding, you know, from the jump, like a pretty safe situation. This boyfriend and girlfriend couple, they're essentially the girl is related to Kaysera in some way, and their kid is being left with the aunt. So it seems like you wouldn't really have to worry about her too much because she's with friends and family. Exactly. This is definitely people that she trusts, people that she knows. So there wasn't any reason to think that after this, she would not be able to be found anywhere. Yeah, I can imagine Grace was just like, okay, yeah, sure, KCR, go. You know, this is my niece. I trust her. Yeah. So Grace, she is a professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. So at this time, she she was close with KCRA, but they did live apart like she was in Wisconsin and Kaysera lived in Montana of course but Grace again was very very close with her so she is one of the first people who's really been that voice for Kaysera and she's just at the forefront of all of it so keep keep her name in your mind listeners because she's a very important character in Kaysera's story well she sounds like an educated outspoken woman so this is the type of person that you need to be you know basically screaming at investigators, investigate this missing person. And then later when things are discovered, investigate it differently. As for people who aren't familiar, I don't want to give it all away, but she sounds like just the right advocate to keep Kaysera's story alive. She definitely is. And she works with a firm called Pipe Sim Law with someone named Mary Catherine Nagel, who has also been an absolute fighting voice for Kaysera in this whole situation. As a note, this information about Kaysera's activities on the day of her disappearance comes from a video uploaded by Kaysera's aunt, Grace Boltail. Jules will link that video in the show notes, and I highly recommend watching it because Grace does an excellent job at explaining everything that transpired that day. And she also shows in the video the last places that Kaysera was known to be. So again, please do go watch that video. I will send it to Jules so she can link it in those show notes. Yeah, I haven't seen this video, but I'm definitely going to watch it after we're finished recording because obviously, you know, the people that did this to Kay Sarah, they weren't expecting somebody like Grace to be having her back. You know, like obviously Grace Boldale is a fighter and she's there and she's going to give all the information and she's going to go, look, like this isn't lining up, guys. Everybody, can you see what has happened to my niece? And I think we see all too frequently that these cases, it doesn't even matter who is missing or murdered. If the family isn't providing pressure, nothing gets done. And I think it's even more true about missing and murdered Indigenous women because 
you need to be applying that pressure, constant, constant pressure in order to make people listen. Because, you know, you've got somebody like Brooklyn Farthing, who you mentioned earlier, where it's not that she isn't deserving of the attention because she is, but you have, you know, an 18 year old white girl and everybody seems to be watching with bated breath. And you have somebody like Kay Sarah and people just don't pay attention in the same way. And it's so unfortunate. So to have Grace really, you know, kind of telling investigators and telling the public, you need to pay attention to this. It is so crucial in this case. Exactly. In this video, it's highly detailed. It's 15 minutes long and Grace walks around the neighborhood where Kaysera last was. And she, she does, she is very forward about this. She goes right up to the houses where Kaysera was last seen. She points at them. She walks up and down the street. She shows you where Kaysera was found. She talks about everything that transpired that night that apparently they didn't find out until a little later on after all of this happened because people were withholding that information. And I think there could be almost this, you know, secrecy around it. It can be very much like, do we want to release this information? Are we betraying those close to us within our community? And, you know, Grace is saying, this is my niece. I don't care who I'm betraying. I want to get to the truth of the matter. I want to know what happened to Kay Sarah. Exactly. The four of them got into the boyfriend's car and drove to a nearby neighborhood where his family lived. At some point, Kaysera and her friend left that house. When they returned, the girlfriend and boyfriend were in the middle of an argument, so the two girls decided to just leave again, and the girlfriend wanted to leave with them. However, when the girls tried to leave, the boyfriend allegedly grabbed his girlfriend and was physically preventing her from leaving. The argument between the two continued, and witnesses stated that things became very loud and heated. Kaysera and her friend stayed instead of leaving the girlfriend behind. According to Grace, they were likely trying to help her leave and keep her safe from her boyfriend. Ooh, that can be a very, very difficult time when you've got a situation with domestic violence, this boyfriend who's, you know, allegedly, you know, being violent towards the girlfriend and Kay Sarah stepping in going, okay, like, you know, I want to leave, but then deciding to stay, you know, if she's that barrier between the boyfriend getting to his girlfriend and being able to do what he wants to do. That could be a very dangerous place for Kay Sarah to be. Exactly. And I think that's why Grace wanted to put this video out there and really put that information out there and say, hey, this person was violent. This person had something to do with this, I think. And Kay Sarah was put into a, a risky situation that she shouldn't have been in because this person shouldn't have acted the way that they acted, but they did. And now they need to answer for it. Yeah. And from what we know about Kay Sarah is she's somebody who's not afraid to play sports with the boys. She's somebody who cares about animals. I'm going to bet that she is every bit that young woman who's going to advocate for her friend who's in a situation with domestic violence. She may very well stand up to the guy and say, look, what you're doing is BS. You shouldn't be doing this to her. And if this guy's in kind of a rage induced state, things could take a turn for the worse really fast. That is what Grace said that it stuck out to her, that situation, because she knew that Kay Sarah would not have left that girl behind with her boyfriend acting so aggressively. Yeah, because she's a loyal friend, right? And she's trying to protect her friend. But she probably didn't realize that in protecting her friend, she was thereby putting herself in danger because the reality is she just didn't have the amount of life experience to really kind of consider that yet. She was so young. Exactly. At some point during the argument outside, a cop car reportedly passed by and this startled the group, as they probably thought someone had called the cops on them. So the group dispersed and ran. Well, this is always really interesting. It's like, what are you doing that you think that the cops are going to be, you know, coming and busting you for? I mean, I do remember being a teenager and having house parties and I grew up somewhere where there was like 35,000 people. We would have a house party at someone's house and then I don't know if the cops would like listen over their radios and like interrupt the cell phone calls or something, but somehow within an hour or two, they would always be at this house. And then everybody would run in different directions because everyone was drinking, had alcohol on them or was smoking weed or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, I remember doing that like, oh, it's the cops run. And, you know, really nobody was doing anything terrible. But in this situation, it's really difficult to know, like they're all running and dispersing. But where did they go? I think it was because the argument got like heated and I think neighbors were 
maybe hearing it. And so the group might have thought that someone thought something serious was happening and like decided to just call the cops. But I don't believe that's what was happening. I think a car just like drove by. Also, side note. When Kaysera's friend returned to the spot where the argument had taken place, Kaysera wasn't with her and could not be found anywhere. She spent some time in the area looking for Kaysera and calling her name, but still she's nowhere to be found. Her friend then returns to the boyfriend's house, wondering if Kaysera had found her way back there. But the boyfriend refuses to allow her to search the area around the house. Red flags all over the place. Like, I'm sorry, you can't search the area around the house? What would be a good excuse for this? Can you even think of one? I can't unless he's just deciding to be ornery and uncooperative, but I feel like you'd have to have a reason for that, I guess. I just can't think of any other reason other than he is involved in something that he shouldn't have been. So these people are all together and then the cop car drives by. They disperse. Somehow the girlfriend that Kay Sarah decided to stay behind with she ends up separated from her boyfriend, but yet Kaysera ends up, we can assume, somehow staying close to this boyfriend who was being violent towards her friend, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the friend comes back, and then all of a sudden, she's like, oh, well, where's Kaysera? Kaysera is nowhere to be found. And he's like, you can't search my property. You can't search my house. I just can't think of any good reason when your friend's then gone missing. And- I'm sorry, if she feels the need to search his house and search the area, she has to suspect that potentially there's something going wrong here, that maybe he's done something to case Sarah. Because if it were me and it was one of my friends, unless I assumed that something bad had happened, I'd just be like, oh, she went home or she went back to her aunt's house. So for her to want to search and to ask to search, that tells me something personally. Exactly. And Kaysera, I can't imagine. I don't think Kaysera was friends with the boyfriend himself. So I can't imagine why she would just decide to run and take shelter from what she thought was a cop looking for her in his house. I don't see why she would go back there of all places rather than just going the short distance to her aunt's house. So I feel like her friend definitely had reason to want to go and look at that boyfriend's house. Yeah, and maybe Kay Sarah ran in one direction or went one way and he followed her. He potentially, I'm not saying this is what happened. He thought that, you know, she was an obstacle. She was getting in the way of their relationship. And I buy exactly what you said, that they weren't friends. Because typically, I think we've all had a friend that has been in a relationship that's abusive. And you're typically not friends with that person that's inflicting harm on your friend. You're trying to get them away from that situation. So I feel like if, Okay, Sarah ended up trying to kind of seek cover with him. He would have almost had to have forced her or followed her in some way. Mm-hmm. And but as a side note, we're referring, it might be a little bit confusing, but we're referring to him as the boyfriend because I actually don't know his name. I could not really find his name anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the same with his girlfriend. So <laughs> that's about as like simplistic as I could make it, I guess. But I think the friend's, Kaysera's actual friend's name is out there. I'm just not positive of what it is. So there's a, there's the reason for that. But no, I don't believe, I don't even know if she was friends with the girlfriend. So I, I don't see any reason why she would be there. So it just seems like a bizarre situation, right? Why would she be left behind with this guy who was being potentially violent and creating such a ruckus that made Kaysera say, oh, like, I don't want to leave you alone with him. Then why would she want to be alone with him? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Which makes me think that maybe he, after they kind of dispersed, I, maybe he sought her out. He was unhappy about probably the confrontation that she got into with him because of how he was acting towards the other girl. I just feel like she's bold. Like this is a girl that's involved in, you know, what was it like choir drama. She played football, basketball. She did wrestling. This is somebody who's confident. She's got female role models in her life, like Grace Bulltail, who's a professor. I think this is a young woman who's pretty self-possessed and pretty confident. I could very much see her standing up and saying something that this guy isn't used to women saying to him. I definitely agree with that. According to Grace's video, the boyfriend then got in the vehicle and began chasing Kaysera's friend and whoever it was that was with her. They hid from him, and when he left them alone, they returned to the house of Kaysera's family member, 
hoping they would find Kaysera there, as again, she had been staying there. But she wasn't there either. This was all on the night of August 24th, 2019, and going into the very early hours of August 25th. So when you say they returned to the house of Kaysera's family member, do you mean Grace Bulltail? It was another aunt of Kaysera's. Yeah, one who lived close by to her. So they had somewhere to go really close to go look for Kaysera, but then when they went there and they found that she wasn't there, they had to be really worried, especially knowing what kind of rage this guy was in earlier. Yeah, Grace was in another state at the time. So this was, I believe, I believe another aunt on Kaysera's mother's side that lived close to her where Kaysera stayed a lot. Because they're in Montana, right? And Grace is in what state? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. The cheese state. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) My American knowledge, knowing Wisconsin is the cheese state. Yeah, that's pretty much all I know about it. Uh, Cheese and Green Bay Packers. That's about all I got. That's all I got, too. So to briefly recap, because I know this is a bit confusing, Kaysera and her friend met up with a couple and was hanging out with them at the boyfriend's house. She and her friend left that house, and when they returned, the couple was arguing, so they tried to leave. The girlfriend tried to leave with them, but her boyfriend physically restrained her from leaving, and the argument continued outside until a passing cop car scared the group and they ran. When Kaysera's friend returned to the spot, Kaysera was nowhere to be found, so she tried searching around the boyfriend's house, but he would not allow her to search the property. Her friend then returned to the house where Kaysera had been staying with her family member, but she was not there either. That had to be a feeling of panic or dread. Like, I can think back to one of my friends who was in a relationship like that, and I remember she kind of went off the grid for a few days and I couldn't get a hold of her. And this was years and years ago, but I still remember feeling like, what if he killed her? And I eventually got a hold of her by going to her place and knocking on her door because I was so worried that I was ready to call the police and be like, he's done something to her. And she was okay, but he'd smashed her phone. So she couldn't get a hold of anybody. Yeah, I've definitely had that that panic when someone just kind of out of character just doesn't really respond to me or I can't get a hold of them for a couple of days. It, it definitely, maybe it's the whole true crime podcast thing, but <laughs> it definitely does give a sense of panic. So I know that I can't, I can't imagine, I guess, how they felt when they went to that other location and they thought for sure she would be there and she wasn't. And this isn't just some girl who's going to go off somewhere. This is somebody who's got roots firmly planted. She's going places. She's not just going to like up and leave. So she just doesn't fit the profile of someone who's just going to run away. And when we know that there was potentially a violent confrontation, we know that this guy was violent with his girlfriend so much so that she tried to leave. And then Kaysera trying to be do the noble thing, trying to protect, you know, the women in this situation, you know, trying to advocate for them. She puts herself in a vulnerable position at the hands of this individual. And so I'm sure that her friend had to just be panicking. And then you've got to worry about telling the family members, we don't know where Kaysera is. Exactly. And she was just in a situation where she was standing up for maybe not necessarily a good friend, but she was with her friend. She was standing up for someone she knew. She she got into a confrontational situation over it. So she's not going to just abandon her friends five minutes later of her own volition. That just doesn't sound like the type of person that she is. She sounds like she's the type of girl that would really stick up for the underdog. And in this situation, you know, it might be really unfortunate because harm may have come to her because of that decision to speak up. On August 25th, 2019, after learning what had transpired the night before, Kaysera's family tried to report her missing, but Bighorn County authorities would not allow them to file the report. They were told they would have to wait 24 hours. I really, really hate this because it's not like we don't have something that we can report to authorities in this situation. The family knew that Kaysera was potentially in a dangerous situation. Then we also have the report from the friend where this, you know, boyfriend of the girl who was in a domestic violence situation wouldn't allow her to search his house or his property looking for Kaysera. That's a major red flag. And that in and of itself should have had officers kind of going, ooh, this isn't looking good. Maybe this man did something to Kaysera. But instead, they're like, nah, you got to wait 24 hours. It's something that I hate the most about researching these cases is when 
a family who knows this person best, they say, this is out of character. You need to look for them. They are missing. And they're told that they're probably wrong. They'll probably be home soon. It's absolutely infuriating. It really is. And the thing is, I understand in certain cases, it can be really difficult where, say, the person has a pattern of running away and then they turn up. That's different. You know what I mean? I still think if it's an underage person, you still need to investigate it right away. But in the case of Kaysera, this isn't a pattern for her. This is a one-off and she was in a potentially dangerous situation where something might have happened to her. And we've got enough people to testify to this fact. So why don't you just do your job and investigate? This is something I will repeat and reiterate time and again. You do not have to wait 24 hours to report someone missing. This is not a law. You are allowed to file a missing persons report whenever you want, whenever you feel that it is necessary. The family was finally able to officially report Kaysera as missing on August 27th. Can you imagine what this family must have been feeling in the time leading up to actually being able to do something actionable, right? To file a missing persons report. Not being able to do that for, you know, how long was that? A couple days? Yes, she... In like the early morning hours of August 25th, I think, is when she might have been last seen. And they knew something was wrong, but they were not allowed to report her missing until August 27th. Honestly, there's really no other way to look at it. It's absolute crap. This family knows this isn't a pattern. This is totally outside the realm of what Kaysera would ever do. Given the situation and all the extenuating circumstances, they should have jumped into action right away. And we're looking at possibly more than 48 hours later, if it was in the early morning hours of the 25th. So this is a lot of time to pass, like maybe two and a half days where they could have been out there looking for Kaysera, but yet they were kind of sitting on their hands going, well, you can't report her missing yet. They must have been infuriated. Exactly. I don't, I genuinely do not understand why actual law enforcement tries to impose this as some sort of actual law when it's not, it's just blatantly not. And I don't know why continuously we see the same thing where families are told that they have to wait a certain amount of time when it's just not true. Yeah. And I think it's even more upsetting with recent cases. Like if we look back at cases from the 80s and 90s, even ones involving children, you hear of law enforcement being like, oh, they just ran away. They'll be back shortly. And it's like they're 13. They probably didn't run away and they're probably not off with a boy. This is ridiculous, but it was sort of just like this approach to policing, like, oh, they'll turn up. And it's evolved since then, since, you know, the advent of the Internet and people being far more aware of the fact that there is stranger abduction with regards to children or, you know, you're even more likely to have a kid abducted by somebody close to you that you know. And the same goes for adults. These things happen and you don't just go, oh, they're a runaway or they're they're This is a favorite of mine. They're allowed to go missing. They probably started a new life. And it's like, what percentage of people actually go and start a new life? The amount of sophistication and kind of monetary reserves that one would require in order to do something like that is astronomical. Exactly. And they always want to say this, especially with, I guess, kind of like new adults, like between like 18 and 22, when people go missing Police always want to say, oh, well, they're an adult now. They can they can just take off. They probably just they probably just took off. They just wanted to, you know, be alone. And I'm like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Like I bet you in, you know, a hundred cases, that might be true for one, but that's like one percent. You can't have that be your blanket statement with regards to how you investigate cases. Like, oh, they probably ran off to start a new life. Like, I just don't think that happens with any kind of regularity. So that it should be kind of your default. So during the span of time while they were waiting to file this report, they had already been conducting their own searches to try to find Kaysera. Days passed by and nothing was found. They weren't even able to find anyone who had information to offer them about where she had been last seen. The information about the night she disappeared didn't come until later on. Yeah, it's really, really frustrating to know that the family had to be out there while law enforcement's trying to get it together. And they're conducting their own searches for Kaysera. Like this part makes me incredibly angry. I know loved ones of family members will often go out and they'll do their own searches. 
but it should be also in addition to searches by law enforcement. There should be an element of cooperation, and it just doesn't feel like this happened here. Exactly. They did not want to offer any resources to look for her. They were lazy, just blatantly lazy about this entire thing. I think that's a really apt description. I think there's really no other way to look at it. It's like, we don't want to divert resources to this. We've got other things to investigate. And that's the way that it must have appeared to the family. And no family should ever feel like their loved one isn't worth the resources to investigate. So on August 29th, 2019, a jogger discovered a body in the neighborhood where Kaysera was last seen. The body was found in the backyard of a home just a couple of houses down from the house where Kaysera and her friend had been on the night of August 24th. This backyard was enclosed by a chain link fence and the body was found just inside of this fence. This is so weird to me. Like, um, first, imagine being the jogger who finds the body. Like, nobody ever wants to discover that. And I think we sometimes forget about those individuals who happen upon a body, how traumatic something like this can be. I know that in situations like this, oftentimes the person who discovers the body is involved. Do not think that's the case here. I think they just stumbled upon her. But it's also really weird. Why this backyard? You know what I mean? I don't know. It just seems bizarre to me. Yeah, I think about that a lot. How people who discover these bodies, how like, I don't want to know what that feels like. I don't want to experience that ever. And it just it's something that always does stick out to me with any case that I research. It's just how did this person just happen to be in this place at this time and just have to be the one to see this? Yeah, I think it's like fate kind of intervenes somehow. And for whatever reason, this person ends up having to be the person to discover the body. And although it is often very traumatic for that individual to be able to discover that body, you at least know that attached to this deceased human being, there's a family. And you, in you discovering that these human remains, hopefully, they're going to be able to tie it to an individual. And then this family will have some kind of modicum of resolution in that they will know what happened to their loved one. There was zero media coverage on this discovery, despite the fact that local authorities were well aware that Kaysera was missing. It was later learned that the authorities hadn't notified any news stations that a body had been found. The sheriff's office also never approached Kaysera's family to notify them that a body had been found. One would think they would at least let the family know whether the body had been identified yet or not, considering their loved one was missing. This also means that the family was never asked to come and possibly identify the body to see whether it was Kaysera. That's really heartbreaking. Because you think, what do family members want when their loved one is deceased? They want that opportunity to say goodbye, to, you know, touch them, to give them a kiss, to, you know, to not be offered that opportunity by law enforcement to identify the body of of their family member. I don't know. I just think that that should be something that law enforcement is offering unless the body is say that there's injuries that have disfigured the body to a certain degree, or there's a certain amount of decomposition that makes them unrecognizable. I still think the family members should be given the opportunity, but they should be warned beforehand, but it doesn't look like that happened here. I don't think it did. I don't think they were ever given that opportunity to see whether this was their loved one. And I know it can be kind of risky because you don't want them to have to go in and possibly see a body that's not their loved one, you know. But at this point, it was just days later and the authorities knew Kaysera was missing. It was already at this point so likely that this was Kaysera, just especially because this was the neighborhood where she was last seen from just a couple of houses down. So they really, it kind of all connected there and they really should have they really should have known, hey, this is probably time to tell the family. I just don't see why they wouldn't say, hey, can one of you come forward and positively identify this body? Because if it's not Kaysera, then we have another murdered young woman and we need to find out who this is. So just by process of elimination here to figure out if this young woman who's been reported missing is indeed the body that's been found in this backyard. Again, it's just such a bizarre situation and police really dropped the ball here. On September 1st, three days after the discovery, Kaysera's mother, Geraldine and Aunt Persilia 
and this is the aunt with whom she had been staying at that house, went to Bullis Mortuary to see whether the body was possibly Kaysera. They were told that it was not her, and they were not permitted to see the body. Oh, well, excuse you. You aren't allowed to see the body. I'm sorry. Do you know who this is? If you don't know who this is, and you haven't run any DNA on it, or no other family members have claimed it, then why won't you let these family members positively identify or say, hey, this isn't Sarah. this is someone else. So this obviously has to be kind of under the orders of the police who are saying, don't let the family see the body. Because clearly nobody's positively identified her. So what is the harm in letting one person go in and say, this is Sarah or this isn't Sarah? Like I keep saying it, but it just seems so simple. And it seems like there was a concerted effort to keep the family members from the body. Exactly. There's a there's a very suspicious air to it as well, especially with information coming up. It, it's not right that they did this. They especially considering the circumstances, it was just it just seems like it was obvious. It was obvious they, they should have just entirely followed that protocol. This was probably their loved one they should probably have the opportunity to come and see her. It's like at this point, what are, what are you guys trying to do? Are you trying to construct a narrative or do you damage control? Because the parents came to you right away and said, or the family members came to you right away and said, she's missing and you did nothing. It was basically two and a half days later on the 27th that, you know, she was actually, you know, reported missing with an official missing persons report. So then you've got this young woman who turns up dead. It may appear that you're not doing your jobs. So are you scrambling and trying to cover your butts right now? I'm not really sure what's going on and I can't say for sure, but it looks like laziness and an element of almost trying to cover something up. To add on to all of that, Priscilla had actually been on the scene when the body was found and she attempted to identify it, but she was not allowed to see the body and was turned away. Like, I just don't understand. Why are they keeping the family members from her body? And the thing is, sometimes when there's, you know, quote unquote conspiracy, it might not go as deep as we're trying to cover up for somebody else. It might be that we're potentially trying to cover up for our own ineptitude and trying to make it look like, you know, we've really done a good job. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes and I don't pretend to, but there just seems to be a lot of very strange elements to this case with regards to the investigation. There definitely is. It's extremely weird that they waited so long to even let the family have the opportunity to, to see her. Like it nearly two weeks later on September 11th, 2019, the family was finally informed that the body was in fact Kaysera. Well, this is just really weird. Did they use dental records? Did they get DNA from the family? What, what sort of measures did they take in order to identify that it was Kaysera? And what makes them think that an early identification from the family wouldn't have served a great purpose? For one, you know, if you're waiting two weeks to say this is case, Sarah, there's potentially going to be, you know, more decomposition. I don't know if they've embalmed her or what they've done to her at this point. I'm only speculating if I guess here, but either way to have the family to wait two weeks, that's a long time to not know, to have this big question kind of out there is this our loved one? Is this Kaysera? And authorities take two weeks and they could have basically avoided all of this if they would have let Priscilla identify the body of Kaysera on the scene. She was willing to do so. Why not let her do this? Exactly. It's, it's so sketchy. It's so suspicious. And I, it just more information comes, comes to light. That's just really going to just stack that suspicion on there. Her family was never interviewed about her disappearance. They were never notified by authorities that a body had been found, and they were never allowed the opportunity to try to identify the body as Kaysera. Yolanda, again, Kaysera's grandmother, and Alan, Kaysera's father, even said that they found out through family, not the authorities, that Kaysera had been found. So we have law enforcement here who's just really not communicating with the family. They're not cooperating. They're not communicating. These people are the victims that are left behind after, you know, their loved one has been murdered and they deserve answers and compassion. Is it seriously so much to ask for a little bit of compassion with regards to law enforcement giving death identification to the family? It just to say that, you know, they go there and they say, you know, this is Kaysera. We are confirming this. 
But again, you basically have this game of telephone with the family, like the police potentially told one person and it's like, hey, it was Kaysera. And then they tell another family member it was Kaysera. It just feels completely unprofessional. And I just don't know what they're doing here. It just none of this feels good. And I can't imagine how it felt for the family. They must have been incredibly frustrated and felt so disrespected by this treatment by law enforcement. I think disrespect is the perfect word for this. That's just the whole time that I am learning about this case. I'm thinking how absolutely disrespectful and disgusting, like just all of this behavior, even just in the first two weeks, all of this behavior from authorities is abhorrent. I I hate it. It's gross. They're being suspicious. They're being lazy. I don't like it. Yeah. And it's like, we're left to wonder why. Are you just covering up for your own ineptitude? Are you covering up for somebody who's potentially an informant? What are you covering up for? Because that's what it appears is happening. And of course, I can't say that with 100% certainty, but that's how it appears from the outside looking in when you're, you know, hearing the details of this case. And I'm sure all of the listeners can agree at this point, something smells fishy. Exactly. They're right from the get-go. There's just something not right about this entire situation. The location where Kaysera was found was directly next to a busy intersection in a lively, active neighborhood. She was in plain sight when she was found. It is extremely suspicious and unlikely that no one would have seen her in that spot for five entire days before she was actually discovered and reported. So we're then left to wonder, was she actually there for five days, you know, kind of just laying there and decomposing? Or did the person who killed her potentially have her hidden somewhere? Maybe... They had her in their home and then, you know, she started to smell and she started to decompose. And so they thought we better get rid of this body. Potentially they had her hidden in their home and then, you know, the body will start to decompose and it will start to smell. And then eventually that smell becomes unbearable and visitors to the home are going to start to notice. So that person potentially at that point could have been panicking and saying, I better dump this body. And maybe due to laziness, poor organizational skills, lack of resources, they had nowhere else to dump the body than this kind of open place. It seems like a strange place to dispose of a body if you don't want the remains found. And this spot was just a couple of houses down from that house where Kaysera was last hanging out with those people. And I absolutely think that she was held somewhere, maybe even alive for a period of that time, and then was placed in that spot because as Grace pointed out in her video, there are just, there's no obscurity to where she was found. There's maybe a couple of, you know, bushes in the backyard, but nothing that would completely hide her from view. She was just there in plain sight. Yeah. So you're probably going to tell us as we get deeper into the story, but do you know anything about the body, like the types of injuries that Kaysera had, if there was any rape kit done on her? I don't know for sure about the rape kit. I don't believe there were any, according to what I know, I don't believe there were any physical indications of violence, I guess you could say. Like there was nothing obvious. I don't think there was anything like a, like stab wounds or gunshot wound or anything like that. So I think that's where, that's where it started to get really confusing and mind boggling as to cause of death, because there was nothing obvious. And I think it was at at one point, I think it was chalked down to quote unquote exposure or something along those lines. It's an entire mess. I mean, I would love to know, did she have any binding marks on, you know, her ankles or her wrists? You know, had she had a gag in her mouth? Could she have potentially been smothered? Was her hyoid bone intact? There's so many questions. So as I'm seeing there has been no cause of death found at this point for Kaysera. Apparently, the investigation remains open, but no, and they certainly haven't released that autopsy. Like, I'm dying to know time of death. You know what I mean? If the coroner or the pathologist basically said, okay, she died when she disappeared, you know, basically within 24 hours, or, you know, she died 24 hours prior to when she was dumped there. This would tell us so much more about the type of crime that it was. Was this a prolonged torture, rape, violent type thing? Or was this just a rage killing that happened? And it happened as soon as she went missing. So if we knew more of this information, we might be able to kind of read between the lines 
but we don't know any of those things. And things like lividity would tell us a lot too. Like what position was her body in? Was she on her back? Like she was found, which I'm assuming she was on her back, but I I don't know. She could have been on her side or on her stomach, but those things are really helpful in telling us, you know, the position that this person was in when they potentially died, but we just don't have any of this information. Exactly. And apparently they did classify her death as suspicious, but still found no cause of death. Okay. So tell me about the crime scene. The scene where she was found was never cordoned off as a crime scene, which means the crime scene was compromised and contaminated. Any evidence that could have been collected from the scene, potentially vital evidence, would be inadmissible in an investigation because the crime scene was never secured. Uh, I collaborate with Dr. Ashley Welvin all the time, who's a criminologist, and she always says when she's training law enforcement, document, document, document. You want to cordon off the crime scene. You want to be wearing little booties. You want to be collecting everything that could be a potential evidentiary value. You're better to over-collect and over-document. Then you sift through it and use what's relevant. It's very clear that this was a murder. And to not investigate this as a murder and to take all of these vital potential clues from the scene, you know, to damage it so much and to kind of like, you know, this approach is just not caring. It's sort of like this laissez-faire approach to the crime scene, like whatever, it'll just investigate itself. No, it won't. You've basically put it in a position where these items are thereby inadmissible. It's so unfortunate. Exactly. And it makes it even more frustrating that there's no there's no details about the conditions in which she was found because she, there was only five days between when she went missing and when she was found. I can't see there being such a huge degree of decomposition that she was unrecognizable at this point unless, say, there was burning involved. But again, there's no details on that. So I can't, and I'm just still so confused as to how such a little period of time passed between her going missing and being found, and yet somehow they have no idea how she died. They can't figure it out. This makes no sense. I feel like it was, in my personal opinion, inadequately investigated. I feel like there had to be some clues on her body. This had only been five days. The rate of decomposition, depending on the environment, is going to vary you know, wildly, but Montana and what month was this in? This was in late August. So yeah, it was hot, but I can't believe after five days that all the crucial evidence would be gone. I feel like it was a half-assed approach to investigation and they just kind of went, meh, whatever, just another murdered indigenous woman. And I can't say that all investigating officers had this outlook, but that's the way that it appears from the outside. And I'm sure that that's the way the family felt. Why wouldn't you be investigating, collecting, documenting everything? I believe that there had to have been a plethora of evidence. I don't believe that this was a sophisticated perpetrator. I believe that this is somebody who probably haphazardly dumped her body. I doubt he took any forensic countermeasures. And I'm sure there, the scene was rife with evidence and they just dropped the ball, in my opinion. I agree. And I think the only the only way that they wouldn't have found anything where she was found is if that was just where she was placed. And that was not the actual crime scene, which makes me wonder, were there any houses in particular nearby that they should have searched for evidence? Oh, I feel like they should have got a couple different warrants and searched, you know, the property of this boyfriend and searched the inside of his house, searched his vehicle. They should have searched everything related to this guy. He was acting completely sketchy. We know that he's violent. We know that he wouldn't let Kaysera's friend search his property or his home. That doesn't look good. She's missing. And then she turns up dead. Why didn't they get warrants and search his place right away? On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004. 
this is missing. After all these years, once the podcast started coming out, we started getting tips. One of her husband Richard's family members came forward, specifically asked us to search this spot. It's a 31-foot vertical shaft, and then it went over, and then it went through a crevice, and then there's another room. How close was this area to where Erica went missing? Probably two miles. There were sightings of Keys within a mile of a diner that she worked at a few weeks before she went missing, um, asking people how deep Lake Champlain was in certain points and asking people if um, anyone would know they disappeared. Uh, you know, just common small talk you make with strangers. Wow, so that was the other job that Brianna Maitland had. She was driving really crazy on the way home. She was tailgating, driving fast. She seemed to be irritated about something all of a sudden. Everything was fine, but all of a sudden, and I think it had to do with that phone call. I was in the dentist chair and the local radio station came on. And that's how I found out. It was Archer Ray Johnson is missing. And I was, okay, that's not a name that you hear. You're in a small town. I knew it was my dad. But I think sometimes we all need to be reminded that for every day that you don't do something, that you don't act or you aren't on the offensive, that someone is in great anguish. Follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Search for Missing in your favorite podcatcher.